uh, is our it's our last session of this before summer break. So we'll take a break for the summer and then come back in the fall. And uh, I wanted to just talk about something that has been on my heart and mind and really that's spurred on from teaching my kids and talking through Proverbs together. I was thinking on Tozer's famous quote, what comes into your mind when we think of, or our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. I just wanted us to spend some time thinking, first of all, on God and particularly the fear of the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? I want to camp there for a little while. And then from that, uh, assuming we have enough time left, I want to look at some specific Proverbs in light of our fear of the Lord that he calls us to obey, specifically in the realm of our speech and how God would have us uh, use our words. So that's kind of the, the lay of the land for today. But let's start in Proverbs chapter 1. And uh, Chris set us up well for this on Sunday. Thank you for that, brother. Uh, but Proverbs chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 to 7, the introduction to the book as a whole. Of course, this is written by Solomon, uh, by God's own uh, estimation, the wisest man to ever live other than Christ, because of God divinely blessed him with that knowledge. And then we're the recipients of that through the inspired scripture here. So Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now specifically, I want us to really think on this last verse, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is actually a consistent theme in Scripture. It says later in Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Job 28, 28. And to, to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So, obviously then, I think we ought to take seriously this admonition. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, then I think we have to start with the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? And I'm going to start with a definition. This is my own definition just from reading scriptures and piecing this together, uh, but I think you'll quickly agree. The fear of the Lord is reverence and adoration for God that draws us to worship, love, and obey Him. 
me say it again. The fear of the Lord is reverence and adoration for God that draws us to worship, love, and obey Him. To, to fear the Lord is not to be afraid of Him in the way that we often think of fear. And we know that not just uh, principally, but we know it blatantly in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, remember, the people have just come out of Egypt. They're there at the foot of the mountain. Moses in Exodus 20 is receiving the Ten Commandments. And there are all these visible displays of the power of God. I mean, the mountain is shaking. Uh, there's, there's smoke and fire. I mean, it's, it's truly a terrifying experience to stand at the foot of the mountain and to see the presence of God manifest in these physical manifestations. And yet, God says this through Moses to the people. They're, they're witnessing this, and they're all trembling in fear. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. But then listen to this. Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that you that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Don't be afraid, because God's doing all this that you'll fear Him. So obviously, then, the fear of the Lord is is not a, to be afraid of God in the sense that we withdraw and recoil from Him. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that true fear of God draws us to enter in, to want to be near to Him. But it draws us to be, want to be near to him with the right attitude, right? With the right disposition. To fear the Lord is a call to understand who God is and how he's to be approached. And he says there in verse 20, so that you may not sin, right? I think that's a key as we think about this idea of fear being reverence, awe, adoration. And that reverence and that awe and that adoration then has a practical effect in the way that we live our life and the way that we think about God. So the question then is, how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord in our own lives? How do we cultivate a growing sense of the right kind of fear of God? And as I thought about that, it came to me that we, we cultivate the fear of the Lord by meditating on the character. The more that we saturate ourselves with who God really is, the more God, by the Spirit, births within us the right kind of fear of God. That's the right balance of understanding. Yes, we tremble in His presence at the thought of the awesomeness of the power and the fact that God is judge. And God hates sin. And yet also we are drawn to Him as this magnificent, beautiful God whom we love, who's been gracious and merciful to us. And so I thought we would do ourselves a favor of just taking a pause and looking at what the Scripture says about God. Let's just behold our God together. And as we do that, through several passages of, of Scripture, it's my prayer that the, the fear of the Lord will just grow and grow and grow in our hearts. So we're going to look at several passages. Turn with me first to Isaiah chapter 6, a famous passage. Isaiah 6. This is the vision that Isaiah has of God, and it's followed by the commission of Isaiah into the ministry, the uh, prophetic ministry that God is calling him to. But this, in Isaiah 6, in the beginning verses, we have this scene in heaven, and we see the magnificence of our God. <clears throat> so let's read the first 
7, verses, Isaiah 6, 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, he has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is a beautiful scene in heaven. We see that these majestic beings, these angels, seraphim, flying around in their own right. These are majestic beings. If we were to see one of them here right now, all of us would tremble with fear at their presence. And yet they are flying around. And what are they doing? They're covering their face from the Holy One that they are worshiping. They're covering their face and they're covering their feet and they're giving one resounding refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That threefold repetition there, of course, emphasizing the, the per perfect holiness of God. And don't forget that these seraphim are in and of themselves holy in the sense that they have never sinned. They have never committed a sin. They, they're far holier than we are, and yet they're flying around, and their description of God is holy, holy, holy. And this is, a, this is a majestic scene. It's so majestic that the prophet Isaiah can only say, Woe is me! I am, I am what am I doing here? Right? I mean, he's, I, I can't be here. I, I'm not welcome. I shouldn't be welcome in this place. I'm a sinner. I come from a group of sinners. What in the world am I doing here? And God cleanses him and welcomes him to be there and then commissions him. This is our God. Turn to Job 38. I wanted to read all of this, but it's a, a few chapters. So I'm just going to read the first part of this. But this is, you, you'll remember, the famous section in which after all of the back and forth and with Job and his friends and the lamentation of Job. Um, Job gets a little bit uh, too big for his britches. He begins to question the Lord, like, why, why exactly is this happening to me? I haven't done anything wrong. And, and God graciously and yet clearly comes and reminds Job. It's funny, you know, God never answers Job's question of why. Instead, God does Job the favor of revealing himself more fully to Job. What he really does is he, he reminds Job of the fear of the Lord. And once Job rightly fears the Lord, Job doesn't need to ask why anymore. Because he knows the God who has brought about the circumstances he's living through. And that's all he needs to know. 
Job 38. We're just going to read uh, the first 11 verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. He goes on, of course, just to over and over again, give descriptions of his power over creation and how nothing happens apart from his hand. And Job ultimately, at the end, of course, repents and is humble at the greatness of his God. Let's look again uh, at another passage, Revelation chapter 1. I love this passage because, you know, if if we could say that Jesus had a best friend on earth, uh, that would have been John, the Apostle John, the disciple whom he loved, his cousin. This would have been his closest earthly friendship. And yet, when Jesus comes to John here after... He, his resurrection now he's just already ascended to heaven and he's in his glorified state notice <laughs> the reaction that john has to seeing his best friend but now his glorified god the god man in glorified form this is revelation 1 we're going to look at verses 9 to 18 i john your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I love that, this beautiful, majestic vision of Christ and all his glory. John uh, falls down, faints at his feet, but Jesus puts his hand on him. What does he say? Do not be afraid. 
there again we have that juxtaposition of the fear of the Lord and yet do not be afraid. A right balance of what it means to truly fear the Lord. We have other passages. You'll have likely even memorized things like Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, moving now to other other aspects of God's character. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His loving kindnesses for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful. His compassions never fail. Let's look at one other passage on the attributes of, of God. Uh, Psalm 139. This will be the final passage, but I hope you can see the just the, the, the argument here of just the, the beauty of God and how as we meditate on Him and think on Him, it produces within us the right kind of fear of the Lord. We're just going to read the first 16 verses of Psalm 139. David writes, O Lord, You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The psalmist goes on, but this is this is just a great description of the omniscience and omnipresence of our God. But let me ask you, as we let all of those passages sort of just ruminate in our hearts, how do those passages uh, excite and bring about a deeper sense of the fear of the Lord in your heart? What are some of the things that stood out to you? Well, just by reading these passages, just the awesomeness of of God, how, Mm. how great and majestic he is, and awesome and he is uh, the only one who read in revelations so this this really uh, encourages my heart to look more to him yeah what else anybody else things that those passages just sort of drew out there's like a there's a peace between um, a right fear and then a and then resting in his fear. Mm-hmm. That's when he says, you not be afraid. 
Oh. You know, if you're with him, you are, you're really encouraged to know that um, when you have fear, that's good. If you didn't have it, mm-hmm. there's a problem. Right. Um, you know, and I, like you said, there's verses in our lives that um, I, I guess they begin to take us over in so many ways. You know, and I think of Psalm 119, uh, is it 120? Uh, my flesh trembles for fear of you, mm-hmm. and I'm afraid of your judgments. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things really draw me back. Yeah. If I'm in sin, uh, that, that's when it really comes immediately. Mm. You know, and I start thinking upon those kind of things. So, so I find a lot of peace with verses that are in some ways scary. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a healthy bear and then there's a <laughs> scary bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it 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 just causes a a sobering of our of our minds to to take life seriously and to never be lax in our sin or or to think that our sort of a Roman six idea idea should we just uh, should we just sin all the more because of grace? No, not if we fear the Lord. How could we do that? Um, what else? Any other thoughts that came from reading those passages? Yeah, th- thinking about thinking about that quote that we read at the beginning, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's uh, that is powerful because every area in our lives are dependent upon what we think about God. Mm-hmm. It affects every area of our lives. How we live, how we treat our families, how we serve the church, loving our brothers, uh, everything, everything uh, goes back to to him, mm-hmm. God, who yeah, and, and and who we are. Mm. And I think that that's the problem now that, that we don't know God, we don't know who we are. And that's why there is our lives are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because that's really getting to the heart of it. Is that any time, any time I allow myself to sin, in that moment, I am not fearing the Lord properly, right? And I think just bringing that back to to our hearts to say, if you fear the Lord, you will walk in His ways. And when I neglect to do that, I have chosen in that moment to have lower thoughts of God than are worthy of Him, right? And I think just it, it all starts to tie together. Uh, our view of God, we say of our church all the time, we have a high view of God, a high view of Scripture. What does that mean? Well, it means that we fear the sovereign God of the universe, or at least we exalt Him as such and seek to live in light of it. And I think we uh, we have to be careful it's just as an aside in our in our circles uh, of theological our theological circles we we love these doctrines when we should we love to sort of the rc rc sproul that was that was his uh this is his wheelhouse like rome uh, or uh, isaiah 6 the holiness of god we in our reformed circles we love this the high view of god and we should but do we just love the theological discussion of it and seeing the beauty of the passages and the, the rich de- depth of it, or do we live in light of it? Does it affect who we are? 
And I think we have to make sure we don't get caught up just in the beauty of the theology and, and not have hearts that are affected by those truths. Well, let's, let's then answer the question, having looked briefly at the fear of the Lord, why then does Solomon say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom? What's the connecting point there? Say again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without fear of him, you don't you don't know the Lord rightly. What else? In what way does it connect? In other what other ways does it connect to wisdom? All all of these passages, you know, like like you looked at, are just showing the reality of who God is. How he's not like us. And you see the reality of who God who God is, and it's uh, it's shocking, mm. you know, and. It just it just made me think of Romans uh, one you know eighteen mm-hmm. you know on just the reality is all men know who God is mm-hmm. and 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 the difference between whether you fear the Lord or not are these passages where these men of God see the reality of who He is and they fall on their knees mm-hmm. and then David concludes here after all of this these things that are frightful the reality that God sees. All my thoughts, he sees when I rise, he sees when I wake up, you know, and in light of, you know, of, of the God of Job and, and, and the reality of, of seeing God face to face with John is is a fearful thing because we realize who the, who we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. But then David concludes, search me. I mm-hmm. mean, he desires to be with him. Mm-hmm. He desires for him to instruct him. He desires for his ways to change. And, and and his will to be God's will. Yeah. And so Romans, you know, the opposite of that is they know who God is, but the reality is what do they do? They suppress truth mm-hmm. and righteousness. Mm-hmm. So the difference between fear and not fearing the Lord is the reality of what you do with the reality that God exists. Mm-hmm. Those who do not fear the Lord, they continue and say, I know God exists because all men know. Yeah. But they suppress that truth. Right. And what? Unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Versus here, David says, after all these fearful things, the reality of God's majesty, mm-hmm. he says, search me. Right. You know. Yeah. No, that's a great point. That Romans passage, I almost included that in here. I'm glad you brought it up. That Romans passage there gets to the heart of it because it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Mm-hmm. And you're right. That is, that's the tipping point. All men know there is a God. Um, when we come to fearing the Lord, and this gets to the heart of why fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, we have to cross that bridge of honoring and giving thanks. And so to to be in a place to receive the wisdom of God, it's God's wisdom, right? It's His knowledge. We're needing it to be imparted to us. It requires humility, right? It requires a submission, a honoring of God as God. Otherwise, that wisdom will not be assimilated into our lives. It, when we come to the Word of God, it requires that we sit underneath it, not over atop it or even alongside it. And so that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because only when our hearts are rightly aligned to God in a reverent, submissive state 
where there's a heart of, I desire to obey you. You have wisdom, I do not. Please impart it to me. That's the beginning of wisdom, right? And we see then how, why the wisdom of the world, the Bible would characterize as foolishness because it has the wrong starting place. Wisdom of the world has a starting place of, we don't need to fear God. I am the center, I'm the fount of all wisdom, or the, the collective society is the fount of all wisdom. Anything other than God, if you have the wrong starting place, you've, auto, you've already cut yourself off from any possibility of wisdom, regardless of your IQ. And so here, then, this just reminds us that our humble disposition of submission and recognition of who God is and a desire to submit and obey Him is the foundation. It's the starting gate of having wisdom and knowledge uh, and walking in a way that honors the Lord. <coughs> that submission is not just like, hey, I recognize you're better at this than I am. So right. I'm going to listen to what you have to say about it. Mm-hmm. Isaiah, why am I here? I should be dead. Right. You know, John falls on his face. And so that, uh, there's so many implications of that, but it... It's God's grace, right? Allowing us to be here, I guess, or allowing mm-hmm. us to even be who we are. Yeah, these patient with sinners, yeah. yeah. I mean, because you look at Job, just like you said, and God was gracious, I think, by just responding to what he did. It was scary. He took him off his high horse, right? Yeah. Hey, okay. I know more than you think I know. Mm-hmm. We're going to go there and figure out now we know. 
So knowledge, you know, to me sometimes it's what God has opened our heart to through our salvation to understand now the scripture. But he leaves it to us also to do some work. Yeah. In the knowledge uh, to love him more. Yeah. And I think it's not just knowledge that puffs up. You know, this is good knowledge. This is Mm -hmm. uh, really healthy for me and my soul to have the right fear. Yeah. then choose to walk in the ways that he's telling me. And what is he doing? He's teaching us as his children to trust him. Mm-hmm. Depend on him. Follow him. Love him. <clears throat> it just grows our reverence. It grows our love. You know, and you sit there and talk, talk about fear, and you gotta, you got to weigh the balance, right? You're in this fear and love. Am I, am I, am I, am I doing this because I'm afraid, or am I doing it because I love you? Right. But it's both. You know? Right. It's both. Both of those are motive, motivating factors. They go hand in hand. I think to to love the Lord is to fear the Lord, because if you love Him rightly, you understand who He is. Um, you know when you. I'm glad you brought up the issue of wisdom, because when you do a word study on wisdom, you begin to understand what the biblical term means. Wisdom biblically is different than just knowledge. It is. It is to know the truth and to have gained the skill of walking in the truth. And so it, it wisdom insinuates obedience to the truth of, of the ability to live it out. Uh, it's the difference of knowing something in, in theory or on paper and it actually now beginning to affect my life. The fool may know the scriptures, but he's chosen not to obey them and walk in them. Right, the wise man knows and humbly obeys, and it it's uh, it's that pursuit of sanctification and, and the difference in knowledge that puffs up is is to add to that knowledge humble obedience, and I think that's the call here. Understanding and wisdom are used interchangeably here, um, <clears throat> almost synonymously, but it's a call to not only know what to do, but then humbly to do it. And the difference comes back to whether or not we fear the Lord. Our understanding of God uh, and our submission to God changes everything. But I think, obviously, this this opening to Proverbs is meant to, to be born in mind, kept in mind, throughout the reading of the rest of Proverbs. And um, I know I can be guilty of, Proverbs is kind of the, the book where, and it's, and, it, and, it, and rightly so, it's it's a list of, proverbial statements and so it's easy to pull them out and isolate them and, and it's not totally wrong to do that as long as we're keeping context in mind um, but even more so than other books proverbs is a lot of one-liners that are meant to be uh, used that way but all those one-liners all have to be under this heading fear the lord that's the beginning of wisdom uh, and so each of those one-liners needs to be obeyed because it connects back to this is what God has said is true. Uh, for me, it puts a whole new spin when we think of one of those one-liners that we often pull out, things like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. When we connect that back to the fear of the Lord's the beginning of, of understanding of wisdom, it starts to make a lot of sense. That acknowledge him is not like a flippant acknowledgement, like, I know you're there, God, so I'm, I'm trusting you then to make make my 
I mean, be a way maker. You know, make this this path for me. That, that's not what he's saying. He said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. That is, <laughs> you don't trust your own wisdom. You're, to acknowledge him is to say, okay, God, in this situation, I'm applying your truth to it, and I'm choosing to do that, not what I want to do. And he will make your path straight because you're walking in his way. How about Proverbs, the next verse, Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That do not be wise in your own eyes, I think often we think of that in the sense of don't uh, applying it to other people. Be humble as you're talking to other people and not being wise in your own eyes. That's that's true. We need to do that. We don't need to pridefully put ourselves over other people. But in context here, he says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is, this don't be wise in your own eyes is don't put your understanding up against God's understanding. As if you have anything to say that's on par with what he would say. To not be wise in your own eyes is to humbly again submit to, okay, my my desire is to do this, but your word says do this, so I'm going to do that because I fear the Lord. That's to not be wise in your own eyes. Now, with all of that in mind, I want to take just the last couple minutes here and um, apply this to several of the Proverbs that follow that deal with the tongue in the way we speak. And I want to do that because I I think, you know, we, we justify all kinds of sins. But I think we think of sins of speech to be on a little bit of a lower level than other sins that we might commit. I was like, oh, I was just joking. Or, oh, that was, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal, you know. Um, we, 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 we let our speech get sloppy, and we don't think too much of it. Um, and I, I think that the Proverbs, though, think a lot of it. I think a lot of how we speak. And and so when we think about fearing the Lord and then walking in his ways, as we start to look at Proverbs, it has a lot to say about the way we use our mouths. Not just the Proverbs, but the Bible in general. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And uh, the reason, of course, that our speech matters so much and that to God and, and it should matter to us is because of what Jesus says our speech reveals about us. Matthew 12, 34 to 37 says, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil tre- treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Wow, I think our speech is pretty important. Um, it reveals our our heart. Here we're see saying the judgment will be brought to you based on things you have said. And so we ought to be... Uh, pretty trepidatious when it comes to guarding our mouths. So keeping the fear of the Lord in mind, that's the context now of where we're going. I'm just going to look uh, with how much ever time we have here. I've got a whole list of Proverbs that deal with the tongue. And I want us to think of each of those and really answer three questions. Question number one will be, what does the proverb mean? Let's just talk it through, make sure we're getting the right meaning. Question number two is going to be, how does it apply to us? And then thirdly, how do we live it out in our daily life? So kind of taking that application into real life scenarios. 
All of this being under the fear of the Lord. That means that God says these truths, these proverbs are the best way for us to live our lives in regards to the tongue specifically. So Proverbs 12, 16 is the first one we're going to look at. And Proverbs 12, 16 says this, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Say it again. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Proverbs twelve sixteen. Now, let's just talk about question number one. What does this mean? Just in your own words, let's let's say back the truth that this verse is telling us. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Self-control in what regard? So if we have self-control in moments where we have been dishonored, it will mean we do what? Or don't do what? Mm -hmm. Right. In As an expression of what sin? Anger. Anger, right? So the fool, and remember the Proverbs... Right, <laughs> but the pride, but the, the anger here is what what he's mentioning. In the pride, the pride is in your heart, and it comes out as anger. But the the anger here is, he says, is not known at once. Now, remember, the proverbs are, are constantly going back and forth between this is the way of the fool, this is the way of the wise. So, in other words, this is the way of a godless man. This is the way of a man who fears the Lord. The godless man is a man who allows his anger to be known at once. This is a quick-tempered man. Boom. You offend me, boom, you're going to know about it, right? I wear my emotions on my sleeves. I'm always kind of ready to, to let you know what I think about you and the situation. That's the fool. The fool has no self-control. You're right, consumed with pride as a, as a root heart problem. But the, the manifestation of that here in this text is a man that is always ready to, and feels justified in immediately letting you know you've made him angry. But a prudent man, prudence here is is a, the, the wise man, a prudent man, a man who has understanding, conceals dishonor. Let's talk about that. What is So what, what is the opposite then of being a quick-tempered man with no self-discipline when it comes to anger? What's the opposite? You don't really respect the person that's, that's having this issue with <clears throat> and he takes it internally, and probably his mind goes to prayer with it and says, I shouldn't be reacting this way. Mm-hmm. I'm not bringing it this way because it's not healthy. Yeah. So, I used to overlook the defense. She's chosen his side to overlook that for what <clears throat> this person is. Mm-hmm. He's considering the person. <clears throat> yeah. You also have the right understanding of. <clears throat> Man has the right understanding of God because you know that you sin against God mm-hmm. first uh, by responding in the same in the same manner. Yeah, getting angry and just bursting and and like you said, letting you know that you, you, yeah, what I think about you. Right. So, mm-hmm. You said it was a godly man, right, on that part. Mm-hmm. So that means uh, a godly man. You're saying is a believer. 
Mm-hmm. You know, right. And, uh, so that, that's why that person is having that attitude. He is thinking of the other. He's the only one that could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you going to say something, Jake? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, uh, the contrast is just be slow, slow to speak. Yeah. It, it is the first reaction. But, mm-hmm. Which is self-control, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which you have because you recognize your position before the Lord. Therefore, when someone sins against you, mm-hmm. your mindset is not default anger, right? but the reality of of heaven and earth, and that we all stand judged before God. So there is no reason to go to anger as a believer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. understand. If I start judging him for his actions towards me, I'm actually judging my own self in mm-hmm. my position before the Lord, apart from the forgiveness that I have in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's a helpful reminder, you know, when we have interpersonal conflict, um, we're just so we're so uh, horizontal in our thinking, right? We're just this is a, this is between you and me, right? And when we think of these Proverbs in context of where Proverbs begins, the fear of the Lord, it reminds us there's always another person in the midst of the conversation that I am under. So, right, it's like you and me, with me under the Lord. So it is not it is not you or any other person that is the ultimate motivation for why I ought not to respond in anger, right? It is my fear of the Lord. And I think that's really helpful for us because where does the justification come in our heart? I'm not saying it's right, but how do we sinfully justify in this moment? I can I can give a zinger here, right? I can let you know you hurt me, right? How do we in our flesh, what causes us to justify that? Yeah, you've done me wrong. And you know what? You may be right. They may legitimately have stomped all over your toes and sinned against you in, in many ways. So in that situation where they have truly transgressed against you, how are we going to maintain this and not be the fool that gives the zinger right back, but instead is a prudent man who conceals dishonor? It has to be the motivation cannot be them. And this is true if it's your wife, if this is your kids, uh, whoever it is, however they're close or far removed from you they are. Um, we always have to remember, I am under authority in this situation. And my motivation for concealing dishonor, for wrangling my tongue and putting this through the grid of what does God say, and then speaking, comes from the motivation of, I am under the authority of the Lord whom I fear and love. And so, yes, you have stomped all over my toes. You've legitimately sinned against me. But that is no justification for me to sin in return. That's between, you are also under authority, and that's between you and the Lord, and he can deal with it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Um, so, see how the, all of this connects. This, the keeping this context of the fear of the Lord is the key to living this out in our daily lives. The fool, his anger is known at once. The prudent man conceals dishonor. I do want to say, when it says the prudent man conceals dishonor, it doesn't mean the prudent man stuffs it all in and lets it ruminate inside, right? Where he covers it with a smile on the, on the outside, but inside he's like, you and you, right? That, that is not what, this, what he's advocating here. What he's saying is the prudent man 
has learned, because of his fear of the Lord, to take every situation back through the grid of truth. This is this is really always comes back to put off, renew your mind, and put on. The prudent man has a grid, a scriptural grid, through which he's analyzing everything, so that he's responding biblically and rightly. Let's uh let's look at another one. Emphasis there is not, he's just not saying it right then. There may be a time later. After right. I've vertically gone through this with the Lord that I'm going to go back, I'll, I'll address this later with my right mind. You know? It doesn't mean, yeah, that you, if a person stomps all over you, particularly if it's a person you're in continual relationship with, that there's not a time to address that. But it does mean there's a right way and a right time to address that. Um, and the prudent man knows the difference. Um, and waits until he can address that without anger flowing out of his mouth. Mm, right. Let's take another verse that's similar. It's just two verses down, Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is the last one we'll do, but uh, I'll give you several other references you can do on your own. But Proverbs twelve eighteen, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This one brings in another element that, that I love. It's, the first line is similar. The second line brings in a new idea. Someone summarize it for me in your own words. What is the point of this? What is it saying? Tearing down. Good. What else? Thoughtless, harsh speech, you know, cuts, it hurts, wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and thoughtful, wise speech, you know, build up those good phrases. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? One who speaks rashly, there's one who speaks rashly like a thrust of a sword. What, how does that manifest itself in life? You don't think before you speak. It just opens your mouth and mm -hmm. let everything out. Yeah. It's also designed to be hurtful. I mean, if you're thrust with the sword, you're trying to kill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. So flip, flip retorts, you're an argument. Mm -hmm. Trying to win by killing mm -hmm. the other person verbally. Yeah. I, don't think, I really want to tell you what's wrong with you. you know, it's, mm -hmm. So it's, it's really. The sword is talking about to go to the heart, but you go in the heart in the wrong way. You know, you're tearing it up. Mm -hmm. You're you're really hurting the person. Yeah. With like groups of antenna. Yeah, there's m m malice there. It's like when your kids angry at you and they freely, because they don't have a filter. Like I hate you. You know that if that kid were six four, right, he'd be dead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. If your four year old were six four, yeah, he'd die. Yeah, they would win. Yeah, it's a pure outburst of emotion. Mm hmm. Yeah, unfiltered. Just it goes back to what you said about words. Words are can be deadly. Mm hmm. Words affect <clears throat> what we say and how we say it, so they can affect the other person. Yeah. Very much, and so careful with how you say it, and what you say sometimes. Mm-hmm. Think about all the abuse that goes in the world. 
All the what? I'm sorry. The abuse. Yeah. Relationships, however they may be, the emotional side, we're seeing more so than the physical. Mm-hmm. From what they would say, interviewed them would say, emotionally it's the worst. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. words are very, very... Yeah. And it also looks like something that's good. Yeah. Like speaking the truth in love. Mm-hmm. Right. Really you can cloak it in that. Really yeah. Not going well. <laughs> I, it, well. I think sometimes we we justify that when we we truly believe something is true, and it may be true, but we are forgetting the in love part. But we think just the truth itself is love, and it's like, well, no, it's it's the truth in love, and so there, it's the way you do it is as important as what you are saying. Um, we're actually like off the cuff. It's, you're trying to be hurtful, but you're you're not you're not even whatever it is that that rashly is 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 without thought. So you're just so I think I'm just thinking, thinking like in an argument when you pull up the past just mm-hmm. to hurt, just to wound. Just yeah, to, you know, you start to know a certain certainly in marriage, you know the the the, the sore spots, the the vulnerable spots, and and if you speak rashly. You target them, and um, it's deadly, and it's hurtful, and it's ugly. What's the opposite then? What is the? Well, let's talk about the second phrase. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Yeah, there's forgiveness there. But what else? There's a there's a this is an activity, so it's active. What does that look like? The tongue of the wise brings healing. Soft words, yeah. Building up. Mm-hmm. It's like a, you're going to a, it could be a counseling scenario, like where you're, you're you're counseling someone through scripture, kindness and love. There's it could be like confession and repentance, like hey, I, I realized that I hurt you. It could be mm-hmm. um, the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, I think of Ephesians four twenty nine where we began. Because it has the whole package. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That's the negative. Don't do that. But then there's positive instruction. But only such a word as is good for edification. And it says, according to the need of the moment. I mean, that's that's such a helpful phrase. So that it will give grace to those who hear. I think that's the description of this, the second half. And all of this, I hope you're seeing there's a theme here, and we, we'll keep Keep going. Proverbs fifteen one. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's, there's. I mean, there's just over and over again. But all, all of them have the idea of being slow. Slow down when it comes to talking. Slow down. And we talk about having a filter. What is the filter for the Christian? The Word of God. So when we say slow down, we don't mean just. Be slower to say the harsh thing, <laughs> right? We mean slow down and do something, right? So something's happening. You're coming at me. Someone's coming at me, and it's hurtful, and my feelings are getting all you know in in the mix, and my emotions are raging. I slow down, and then what do I do? I I think uh, James applies when he says <clears throat> good to good to hear to listen and slow to speak. Uh, I think it means. Uh, that you you take time to process, mm-hmm. uh, take time to process what is being said to you, and 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 bring the word of God mm-hmm. to, to uh, uh, 
Exactly. Now let's talk about what I want to parse out is in that processing, what are some of the thoughts we ought to have? As we filter. Okay, yeah, so I, I've been hurt. My, you know, yeah, so my, my emotions are involved. I have legitimately been sinned against. What should I think about? What verses? What thought? What truths? Mm-hmm. You know, I just got to stop myself first because we're going to react. Mm-hmm. How you got to stop from reacting? You got to you got to have a way to stop yourself. You got to train yourself mm-hmm. in order to prepare your mind for not just being a reactionary person. Yeah. I used to, I used to think, oh, Lord, help me not cuss this person out. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's changed a little bit. Okay, Lord, help me to respond. Right away, mm-hmm. that's probably harder than because you know, rashly answering is fast and quick, right? Right. Happens quickly as opposed to slowing down and giving somewhat of a yeah. graceful answer. Yeah. I think. It, go ahead, David. Uh, I just I think Proverbs eighteen two: fool does not delight in in understanding, only revealing his own mind. I think I'm mm-hmm. a, am I speaking my words or am I actually looking the scripture? Yeah. I think it's one thing to get to the first half of Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word produce your mouth. So that's, Lord, help me not say something right now that would be sinful. That's good. But it goes another step to, but only such a word as is good for edification. So I've got to get my heart so not just calmed down, but so in a right state of sanctification that I not only don't respond sinfully, but I respond positively with something that's going to build up and be healing to that person. Now, that's a whole other level of, of filtering, right? Um, you know the old saying, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Well, biblically, Ephesians 4.29 says, if you can't say something nice, repent and say something nice. Right? That I mean, it's so the goal, the fear of the Lord does not cause us just to, it doesn't cause us to not speak. It causes us to be slow to speak and be intentional when we speak so that what we say actually builds people up. And that's a whole nother level. And so when we talk about all of you are right, stop, slow down, process. But I, I think it's helpful and right for us if we really want to mature in this to have some go to what do I think about when I have been legitimately sinned against how do I process that so I get myself not only to a place where I don't respond in anger, but I can respond in that moment in a way that loves that person with my words. I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing. So I'm thinking of things like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? What has Christ done for me? What was my condition when he came for me? Was I loving him and kind and soft and warm? No. I was dead in my sin. I was a rebel against God. And yet he loved me in my sin and he rescued me. He showed grace to me. He still shows grace to me in my filth, in my sin. What did Christ do when he was reviled and did not revile in return? What did he do on the cross as he's facing his accusers and those who have nailed him to the cross? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Think of the witness of Stephen as he's being stoned, following in footsteps of Christ. Father, forgive them. Do not hold it against them. 
Think of Paul in 2 Timothy 4. When at the, Go later, read the end of 2 Timothy 4 where he talks about how he's been betrayed and he's been left. And there was a man that stood up that harmed him publicly. And he says, at first, no one came to my defense. No one came to me. May it not be held against them, he says. Uh, so we, we've got to cross the bridge from, Lord, please help me. That That is a good prayer. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Um, but we've got to think about thoughts of what did godly people do, starting with our Lord and then down the chain from there, when they were faced with real adversity, when they were stomped on and sinned against and rejected and misunderstood and accused and wrongly represented. What did they do? They responded with grace and kindness. They prayed for them. They loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them. And so I think thinking on yourself, who you were when Christ saved you, and how he's treated you since, and how he treats you when you come back to him having committed the same sin again. And then the compassion starts to come over you to say, Lord, help me then. When we say, Lord, not just help me, help me not to revile in return. Don't hold this against them. And God, help me to say something that would show the love of Christ to them as I speak to them, right? That's the filter, right? And so I think as as we deal with our loving our wives and our children and coworkers and, and hard people, hard family members, um, those are the kind of thoughts that we need to be thinking if we're going to fear the Lord in our speech, right? Now, I ran out of time, um, but we can talk more after if you have time. But I'm just going to give you some references to take home and to keep doing the same exercise. Proverbs 15.1. <clears throat> Proverbs 15.28. Proverbs 17.27. Proverbs 18.2. Proverbs 18.13, Proverbs 26.20-21, and then Proverbs 29.20. Obviously, we were never going to make it through all of those, but those are the ones that I had in my notes. <laughs> and so, um, so it was, uh, how do we live it out practically? So... And the difference between question two and question three is question two is kind of a simplistic statement. I need to be slow in my speech. Number three is think about your wife, think about your kids, think about your boss, think about whoever, and how specifically with them do I need to apply this.